So Luke chapter 18. Now, it can be really embarrassing to discover that beliefs that you've held for a very long time are in fact wrong. Have you ever had that? Now, it, it could be something very, very trivial. Uh, I often find this with the lyrics of a song. So quite often, you know, I hear a song on the radio, I haven't got a clue what the line in the song is, and my mind starts making up all of these kind of what it might possibly be. Uh, I was amused to find that there is actually a website for this, uh, devoted to it for people mishearing lines for songs, such as the Bob Dylan classic, The Ants Are My Friends, and They're Blowing in the Wind. Or my all-time favourite, some of you might remember, the monkeys. I love this. Then I saw her face. Now I'm going to leave her. <laughs> Not a trace of doubt in my mind. Yeah? <clears throat> so it could be something trivial, or it could be something vastly more serious that you're mistaken about. So, for example, people used to believe, and there's a poster here I'll put up on the screen for you, people used to believe that smoking was actually good for you. Can you imagine opening your magazine to that today? <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Give your throat a vacation. <laughs> well, why wouldn't you? I love my throat. I'll give it a vacation. I'll smoke some camels. This will be fantastic. Uh, the mind boggles. I don't know what to say about that. It's, we know now how badly mistaken that is, don't we? But people didn't used to. Uh, and uh, it can be really hard to finally accept that something you've always held to be true, important things, are in fact false. Nobody likes to admit their errors. Why? Because it's humbling, and we don't like to be humbled. I was humbled very much at the quiz last night, as it pointed out all the many manifold things that I do not know, and that I actually don't really care whether I know them, actually. Uh, I mean, that's why we have many difficult conversations, don't we? I guess most people in this room... You've had a hard conversation with someone like a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who's knocked at your door if you've engaged them in conversation. It's really hard because nobody really wants to back down about what they've, they've believed all their lives, what they think is true. Well, this story that we've just read is a story all about misplaced confidence. Uh, you can actually see it in the first sentence. Have a look at it. Uh, in verse 9 there of chapter 18. It starts, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. That's why he's telling it. Jesus is clearly concerned that in his audience there are people who are dangerously mistaken about their own righteousness. And that's a serious thing. Righteousness is just a fancy word, really, to describe our standing or our status before God. To be righteous is to be approved of by God. That's what it is in the Bible, isn't it? Acceptable to God. In all of his holiness and perfection, to be suitable, to be in that presence, to be suitable for heaven. And how does one achieve such a standing? Well, that's the big question, really, isn't it? So to make his point, Jesus creates two kind of caricatures that everybody would have been kind of familiar with. And they're caricatures that people would have put at opposite ends of a spectrum of sort of good to bad, a moral spectrum, really. Two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. So first of all, you've got the Pharisee. People admired the Pharisees. They were generally looked up to. Pharisees were meticulous, 
about keeping all the laws of the Scripture. They were famous for it. So they had the laws of the Scripture, and they put laws around the laws to make sure they didn't break the laws that even protected the laws that they were, not trying, that they were protected by the laws. They were law people. They wanted to make sure they were right, and they wanted people to know that they were devoted to God. Pharisee actually means set apart, a set apart one. That's what a Pharisee is. I'm different from the mainstream. Look at me. I'm doing it right. Yeah, that's what a Pharisee is. So they were a strict religious division that were considered really devoted to God in the culture. And you'd be able to recognize a Pharisee. You'd recognize them by their sort of pious public acts of uh, holiness. So they would do loud public prayers. You'd be able to hear them praying. Yeah, they want everybody to hear. Uh, even when they made donations to the poor, traditionally, apparently they had a big sort of receptacle made of beaten out brass so that when they put coins in it, it would clang. They wanted you to hear the giving. To, a tangible sense of the holiness of the Pharisee. That's what they wanted. Uh, and then they would have their ritual washings. Uh, and especially, you'd pick them out in a crowd because of the way they dress. They dress differently for everyone else. I, I guess the parallel today might be uh, a, a, a vicar that likes to go out throughout the week with the special shirt and the dog collar, so you know who he is. Or a nun wearing a habit, that sort of thing. Someone with a badge of who they are and their status. And we can get a pretty good idea about this religious group by looking, funnily enough, at Saul of Tarsus, who was later the Apostle Paul. Now Saul, we read, was, was a man who had practically from birth put his confidence in the wrong thing. He admits as much. And defending himself in later life, as he stood in front of the big Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, in Acts 23, Paul declares, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. That's a title, isn't it? Clearly, Phariseeism ran deep in his family. Multiple generations of Pharisee. He was as Pharisee as you could get. He would have been raised in it and taught it from a young age. And the Pharisees were pretty impressive guys, if you'd met them. You'd have been impressed, I guess. They knew their Bibles, and they took the study of the Scriptures very seriously. There were a couple of other groups that were serious about uh, the study of the Scriptures. You had the Sadducees, and you had the Essenes. The Essenes are the Dead Sea Scroll guys who took a mystical approach and separated themselves off from society, really, to, to do their study. They took vows of voluntary poverty in communities away from the town. There's a, a lot of Pharisee about them, but they were out there, away, kind of a bit wacky. Uh, and then you had the Sadducees, who were the, the sort of liberal skeptics of the day. They didn't really believe in anything supernatural, especially the resurrection from the dead. But the, the Pharisees, they were a good mainstream group who didn't put themselves away. They lived publicly amongst the people, letting their, as it were, light shine for people to see. They neither denied the supernatural, nor were they weirdly mystical. They were not disconnected from real life. They were practical people. And they were obsessive, in fact, about how they lived amongst people. They were the ultimate law keepers. That's the impression you get. If a Pharisee was going to take a drink, they carefully took the drink and strained it first through some sort of fine mesh. Uh, because they didn't 
want to unintentionally swallow a gnat that might have landed in the drink. See, a gnat's an unclean insect. If they get anywhere near that gnat, they're going to be defiled, and they must not be defiled even by the gnat, okay? And when it came to tithing, to giving to God, giving back a tenth of their income, they even went so far as to go through their little window box with the herbs on it and make sure that they counted out the seeds, the cumin seeds or whatever it was. I mean, can you imagine the winter nights going by as you sit there with a pile of seeds on your desk, you know, nine for me, one for God, and sorting through them painstakingly. And yet, the, their idea of righteousness was actually largely a cosmetic one. That's the interesting thing, and, and Jesus exposes that. It was a surface thing. See, in desperately seeking to follow the letter of God's law, they completely lost the heart of God's law. They didn't observe the heart of the law. So sure, they might give exactly the right amount of seeds and herbs. They might wash their cups and their bowls, and they might strain their drinks to get the gnats out. But their hearts, just like every other sinner, were full of pride and lust and anger. And you see it so clearly in the Gospels, don't you? Look at the way they treated Jesus. They want him dead. Their hearts are just as sinful as the next man, aren't they? It's all surface. And you can't, you see, you can't see a heart, can you? You can only really see the public things, the outward thing that you do. And so they were good at that game. They had their religious act. The Pharisees were masters at hiding their own unrighteousness and papering over all of the secret sins of their hearts. They used the law as a cloak to cover their sin. But in actual fact, the real point of the law is completely the opposite. Do you know that? The law of God is supposed to reveal and to expose our sin. That's what the law does. And so the law that should have humbled them and taken them on their knees to God instead became the very source of their pride and their boasting. How twisted is that? The thing that should humble them makes them boast. That's basically what's going on. And Jesus had choice words for them. He called them out on their hypocrisy. He said this in Matthew chapter 23. He said, he said this to the Pharisees. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, the smallest unclean creature, and yet you swallow a camel. That's the largest of the unclean creatures. See what he's saying? He said to them, you are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You're like a sepulcher full of bones. Now, those are humorous images, but the point is deadly serious about the Pharisees, isn't it? All those religious acts and efforts to keep up appearances do nothing to remove or to lessen the guilt in their hearts and the sin in their hearts, the small, smallest bit. It does not fool God. And in fact, the hypocrisy of the way that they lived only added to the offense. Well, that's why you'll remember... The Apostle Paul, back to him, speaking of that former part of his life and all those things he used to boast about as a Pharisee, says this later on after his conversion. He said this, I consider all of that stuff that I used to do, I consider it garbage. That's the polite word. 
that I might gain Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on a basis of faith. Well, then there's the tax collector. That's your Pharisee. Then there was the tax collector. Here's the other character for the story. Now, this is a man who, rather than being admired by society, would be looked down on, despised by all. Uh, and probably, in some ways, rightly so, because the, Pharisee, the, the tax collectors had a reputation for not really having a moral bone in their bodies. They'd sell their own grandma for a five-pound note. Uh, the Roman word for the tax collector was the publicanus. It was a, it based, the public, publicanus was the, was the tax gatherer for the Romans. So taxes in the empire were harvested from the provinces, uh, provinces like Judea, perhaps. And a Roman official was put in charge over the whole area, um, and then he would um, put out to tender sort of parcels of territory that a Jewish citizen could take on to go and collect the taxes from there. And he could do what he liked with it, really, because he had the full backing of Rome behind him, and he could charge whatever he wanted from people, and they often did charge extortionate amounts. So effectively, then, he's an employee of the Roman Empire. He's harvesting money from good Jewish citizens, skimming off a healthy little chunk for himself. That's how he makes his living. This is like, it's a, the equivalent today would be like the, the mobster that runs this little sort of protection racket that, you know, goes into the business with a baseball bat and tells him to cough up his little sort of protection money or something. Pay up or I'll send the boys round. They'll make an example of you. He's a bully, really, with Rome behind him. And he would have been looked down upon by society in the same way that society perhaps today uh, villainizes people like the paedophile or the... The, uh, the trafficker. He would be ostracized, hated, despised. So you see what Jesus is doing right up front? He wants his audience to get this. In my story, I am giving you the really good guy and the really bad guy, okay? As, as good and as bad as you can get, both ends of that spectrum. And so the parable begins in verse 10. Have a look with me. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So you've got these two characters introduced to you, and they're both going to the same place. Verse 10, they've gone to the temple. They've gone to the big religious hub in the heart of the city. And they've both gone to do the same thing, he says. They've both gone to pray. They've gone to talk to God, to have dealings with the God who's made them. That's why they've gone. And one has gone proudly, He's gone proudly and confidently, and he's gone publicly, and he wants people to see him. He wants people to say, oh, look, there's old Levi. He's had his bath. He's got his clothes on. He is very clearly making his way to go to the temple. He's off, he's off to do his religion. There's Levi. The other, the other character, one suspects, is keeping to the shadows. He's got his hood pulled up. He's trying to stay as low-key as possible. He doesn't want to be recognized. He's the tax collector. Well, when they get to the temple, the Pharisee is the first to speak, says Jesus. First, he stands, we're told. Uh, and that word literally means 
He established himself. That's a very Pharisee thing to do, isn't it? He got to, I guess, a nice public spot and established himself there. I don't know whether there's a sort of expanding of the chest and a raising out of arms because he's about to do something he wants people to see. He assumes the position. One translation of this verse actually seems to indicate then, in verse 11, that he proceeds to pray. I think we had it read this way, to pray to himself, to pray towards himself to pray about himself. And when you read what he prayed, that's a pretty good summary. Take a look at it with me. Verse 11, this is his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, as prayers go, it's not exactly a model, is it? At least it starts okay, doesn't it? It starts with the word God. But from there, it appears to be all downhill, doesn't it? Did you notice? Do you notice the flavor of the prayer? It's I, 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 I. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. It's like as if he thinks that he must point this out because God can't possibly be aware and ought to be just like the crowds around him. And it's the weirdest thing, that prayer. I wonder whether Jesus is trying to get his audience to laugh, except there's a sort of a sting of truth to it, perhaps, because they know that prayer. They've heard that prayer. It's like a man going to the doctor and saying, Doctor, goes into, into the clinic, he goes in and says, Doctor, put away your stethoscope. I've given myself a thorough inspection, and I just want to tell you how well I am. I'm really well. I'm in brilliant shape, and I am not at all like all of those sick people coughing over there in the waiting room. I'm not like them. It's a ridiculous thing, isn't it? What an embarrassing spectacle. You kind of cringe. But Jesus paints this picture to get through to us. Is there something of that Pharisee in you and me? Perhaps you say, oh, no, 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 not at all. But how do you consider yourself? Do you think of yourself as, as sort of righteous? in some way. Do you think that God is impressed with you a bit, at least? Do you know, every street survey done that I'm aware of, where they ask the question, do you consider yourself to be a good person? You know, go on the street, you ask anyone that question, always the overwhelming response is, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty good. That's how people assess themselves. It's the average assessment, isn't it? And at times when perhaps just for a moment it dawns on you that you're not quite absolutely perfect, well, is your first reaction to say, yes, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so, him or her? It's in our heart, isn't it, to play that little compare game as well. It's in our nature. It's the classic response from any child, isn't it, when you, especially if they've got a sibling, uh, you know, you call them out on doing something bad and they know that they've done something bad, the first thing they want to tell you is about how, yes, but look how bad my brother or my sister is. Look at what they've been doing is worse. So what do you preach to your heart? What do you say to yourself in those moments where you're thinking about yourself? Is it something along, you know, do you pray, do you pray in your heart a sort of, God, you, you know, I'm not that bad, am I? You, you know, God, that I'm doing my best. Yeah? I'm doing my best. And 
have you noticed, God, that I'm, I'm doing all right? And I'm not as bad as people around me. Listen, Jesus says that that man did not leave the temple justified before God. That's what it says in verse 14. He did not leave the temple justified for all of his religion. And that means that God wasn't impressed. It means that man had no right standing before God. However, the other man, the other man, the filthy tax collector, you remember him? Well, he went about things completely differently right from the start. Jesus tells us in his story that he stood at a distance. He wasn't going to draw attention to himself. That's the last thing he wanted. Jesus says he would not even look up to heaven. He felt his complete unworthiness to even approach God in prayer. You can see him standing there, can't you? What am I even doing here in the temple? Why am I here? And he beat his breast, Jesus says, a sign of deep sorrow. And he simply says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's the entirety of his prayer. The entire attitude of his heart was different. He pleads for mercy, for unreserved pardon for his sins. That's what he wants. He wants mercy for a sentence that he knows that he deserves to receive. Because all he can bring as he comes to the temple is his sin, and he knows it. He's got nothing else to bring. In fact, that phrase, God have mercy on me, is actually more accurately, more accurately rendered. God, please, please will you atone for me? It's more than just mercy, isn't it? Please will you atone for me? Please, will you make reconciliation for me? Will you fix this problem between you and me? He's not asking that God will just be merciful. He's not asking for God to reduce the sentence, or sweep his sin under the carpet somehow. He's asking that God will act on his behalf and do something about his sin. That God will deal with it for him, because he knows he can. And Jesus says in verse 14, this man went home justified before God. I wonder how the audience, as he tells this story, took that. This man left the temple, says Jesus, accepted by God, forgiven, having had his sin actually dealt with, unlike the other. Having been shown the mercy, he's humbled himself and pleaded for. He was justified. Justified. That means declared to be right by God himself. That's worth having, isn't it? Listen, Jesus said, to all those who followed him, he said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, I, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I wonder, I wonder how people took that sentence from Jesus. You've got to be way, way more righteous than the Pharisees, or you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if our being righteous depends on working really, really hard for it, then clearly we've had it. Why? Because you just can't work harder at being righteous than the Pharisee. I'd love to see you try. 
Yet entrance into God's kingdom requires it. It requires a flawless righteousness, according to Jesus. Now, this little story that Jesus has preached to the crowd, some of whom almost certainly would have been Pharisees, I suspect, this is dynamite, isn't it? To suggest that the lowest of sinners can be justified, declared right by God himself, whilst a religious leader is rejected and goes home no no better than when he arrived. That would have been seen as an all-out attack, actually, even on the law of Moses, and more importantly, on the the justice of God. This this is not a just God that you're talking about, Jesus. How can God be just if he goes around justifying ungodly people like that tax collector? That is not the God pictured in the Old Testament, who does not let the guilty go unpunished. They probably would have liked that line. How can God be a God of ultimate, pure justice and fairness and at the same time declare a man with a lifetime of sin behind him perfectly righteous? How can God do that? And that's the question. That is the question that the Christian gospel answers. Graciously, that is completely undeservedly, God has provided reconciliation, at one moment, that's atonement, isn't it? Through the death of Jesus Christ, his son. Justice is satisfied because the penalty for our sins fell on Jesus instead of us. He paid all of it at the cross, where God's judgment fell on him instead of us. And if that wasn't mind-blowing enough, the perfect Jesus has granted that his own righteousness, his own righteousness from his own righteous life, would be credited to us, paid into our account. What a staggering thought. And thereby, we ourselves, if we come in repentance and faith, just like that tax collector, we ourselves are justified. Justified. Right with God. The judge before whom we will all stand in the end has actually effectively at that point banged his gavel down. And written down in his book, righteous, right by your name. And that declaration will be in front of him on the judgment day. So that we can say now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What did the tax collector have to do to be justified? How was he to obtain this righteousness? Well, that's the staggering thing in the story, isn't it? Nothing except to just trust God to humble himself, to ask for it, to beg for it, and to trust that God would provide it. You know, last year we had the celebration of the Reformation. I mean, we really milked it at our church. We did a load of Reformation stuff. 500 years ago last October, so they say, Martin Luther nailed his objections to some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church onto a door. Martin Luther was a strict Augustinian monk. And for years, for years, he battled with all manner of doubts and fears. He called it his Anfechtung, which is a brilliant word, isn't it? It was like a cloud, a heavy burden that pained him and hung over him his whole life. He slept on a cold stone floor. He fasted so often that his health was in jeopardy. People thought he might die. He poured all of his energy into spiritual disciplines. And yet Martin Luther the monk had no peace whatsoever. He doubted whether God would forgive him anything. 
He confessed his sins to his superior so often and in such detail that he was told by him finally to either go and commit some sin worthy of confessing or to quit bothering a busy man with silly little things. Luther felt that he could never be sure, this is the problem, he could never be sure he'd done enough. Or if the things that he had done, he'd done with enough sincerity, had he really meant it? These things just plagued him the whole time, always second-guessing whether he was really genuine before God. Had he had the right motives to merit the righteousness that he needed to enter heaven? Then one day a, a thought struck him. Very interesting. He went to the confessional and he confessed his sins and the priest absolved him. And as the priest absolved him, he, uh, he pronounced on him the promises of God for forgiveness. And suddenly a, a, a switch went off in Luther's head. So righteousness doesn't come by working for it. It comes by trusting a promise. See where his logic went? And holding on to that little thought desperately, he went to his Bible, picked it up, and he started to read through Romans chapter 1. He came to verse 17, and this is what he read. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. I mean, he says that was the moment that he was just so elated, he felt like he'd been born again. Here was the promise of righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of God, revealed in the gospel, obtained simply by faith and given as a gift. A free gift from God to all who will humble themselves, beat their breast and declare, God have mercy, atone for me, a sinner. You know, this little parable of Jesus, it's a story that shows what a danger pride can be. Pride is just a, is an insidious poison, isn't it? Pride stops us from admitting that we might have been wrong all our lives about something. That we're really not good people. Pride can stop a person from coming to God at all. And even if you do, if you can't see you're a sinner, you won't come asking for the right thing. You certainly won't come asking for mercy, only really boasting in your own goodness, your own greatness. And if you don't come to God for mercy, well, you can't be made righteous. Jesus says in verse 14, those sobering words, look at them, his little summary. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. So how will it be for you on that final judgment day? If you come before God, the judge, on that day, boasting of your righteousness, I guess he'll just laugh in your face. And you will be brought down, says Jesus, to the dust in shame. It'll be a very embarrassing day for you. You come boasting in your righteousness. But if you come on that day claiming nothing but only trusting in the blood of Christ Jesus shed on the cross for you and for your sins, 
That day will be, says Jesus, a day of exaltation, of lifting up eternal life in God's glorious kingdom. Those who recognize the sinfulness of their hearts and come to him for mercy, he will, he says, never, never turn away. So how about about you? Tonight, will you return home 